What is up, everybody? How are you? So normally we don't do this and we get right into the introduction and then the show, but for this three-part series, I just feel inclined to have an introduction before the introduction before the show. What an absolute honor and a privilege. We are going to present a three-part series here with two incredible, incredible human beings, great men, great fathers, great cops, and you're going to be in for a treat on this one. I have a feeling we could sit down and talk for hours between the three of us. We've got a three-part series, and it starts right now. The job. The stress. We are, there is an active shooter working at Douglas. Multiple gunshots are being fired. Politics. Politics. Pressure. Pressure. Get out of here. We got a guy with a long rifle. We don't know where the hell he's at. Fear. Survival. Control 765, I need the radio for a minute. Be advised, we are taking fire from a very high floor. We believe it's possibly coming from the Mandalay Bay. And we get it. And we have to do better. The truth behind the badge. Presented by the Team South Florida Law Enforcement Charity. Hello, this is Rich from Team South Florida Law Enforcement Charity with a very special podcast today. I know it's been a little bit. We've had a lot going on lately, uh, some good things, some bad things, but really excited today. I'm joined by two guests. I've got Cornell and JR with me, and we're going to be going through a three-part series focusing on mental mindset in our current times. When the time comes and you're truly faced with a life and death critical incident, and then we're going to conclude the series by discussing what's important now outside of the job, because as we all know, There's a lot more to life than just the job, so to speak. So before we get started, I want to give a couple of seconds, maybe about a minute or so. JR, if you want to introduce yourself real quickly, and then Cornell, you could follow up. My name is JR. This is what I go by. I'm a junior. I've been in law enforcement for about 10 years now, currently a corporal on patrol. Over my career, I've worked in core security, uniform patrol, did some time in narcotics, uh, back on patrol as a first-line supervisor, and also been a part of our uh, Sheriff's Emergency Response Team, which is SWAT for about eight years. So I can consider myself somewhat of a vet in the game. I've been doing it for a little bit. You know, got that first part of my career pretty much down in the books and looking forward to knocking out the next 20. So Very nice. Well, thank you for joining us. Cornell, how about you? So 2021 is going to be year 14 for me. Uh, I've moved around a little bit. I've done criminal investigations, uniform patrol. I volunteered my time with some special operations, uh, different scenarios. And uh, currently assigned to the patrol division. Sounds good. And do either of you have any military experience? You don't have to name the specific branch, but just a flat out yes or a no. Well, it's going to be a no for me. I have zero military experience. I was a college athlete, so that's <laughs> that's my background. Got it. So, yeah, I'm currently a reservist serving on active duty orders as an instructor. All right. And then just sticking with that, have you felt that there were some similarities between maybe mental mindset preparing for what you face with military and law enforcement or completely separate? They definitely have their own unique differences, but there are some commonalities as well. All right. Got it. And JR, you've been well-versed around the block with quite a few different areas, not just your typical patrol responding to calls for service. Over your years of experience, would you say, and this is not a knock on any particular academy, but would you say you've learned more from actual real-world experience, or did the academy prepare you for what you need to be prepared for? 
hundred percent real world experience. That's the, that's the best learning for me. I think I've gotten the best out of actually doing a job and actually being at the show. So I would say more so uh, experience. And what about if you want to elaborate a little bit on that mentally, emotionally, physically, after going through the Academy to where you're at now and what you've been through? So after going through the Academy, you know, it's kind of, I've kind of, the mindset thing was, it was new to me, you know, going through the Academy is kind of, I kind of consider it somewhat, since it's a paramilitary, paramilitary Academy, I kind of break you down, preparing you for it. But, you know, there's, like you, like you said, BLET is basic law enforcement. You know, it wasn't until through the FTL process and after I got on my own to where I kind of learned experience, getting in the car by myself and interacting with people, uh, being involved in a situation where it was just me, learning how to adapt, being hurt in the job, even being shot in line of duty. There's things over my career that I've been exposed to that have just continued to build upon my experience. And uh, I take each experience by day and learn. Uh, and you'd be surprised how much you actually learn from going through those experiences. Things just kind of come to you naturally after repetition of being involved in it. So that on the ground training uh, where it was real world experience is so valuable to this profession. And I think we got to continue to build upon that. Very, very key, uh, staying fit and, and being in shape, things of that nature. I'm a specialized physical fitness instructor as well. So kind of took that uh, that role on of being active in the academy and continue to roll on with something I wanted to do. So becoming a general instructor now, a specialized PT instructor where I lead, lead PT, getting these guys, you know, physically prepared for the job. So, yeah, you know, you touch on an important part. I feel like PT and physical training is really harped on in the academy. My personal experience from two separate police departments, it kind of falls off and it becomes 100% on us as individuals to keep that up after the academy. Would you agree? Was that your experience? I 100% agree. You know, with it being mandatory, you know, normal academy, you know, you're doing three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, you're kind of being told to do it. And, you know, once you get out on your own, nobody's down your neck, breathing down your neck, telling you to eat PT, telling you to keep your standards up. Nobody's checking on what you're eating, looking at your meal logs. Uh, so it becomes, you know, to you, you know, we see a lot of rookies in the academy. They'll they'll start off in the best shape of their lives, you know, and, and you know, being thin and, you know, muscular and they can run for, for, for days. And I think that carries on for a little bit of the first part of their career. And then once they become complacent, um, I think they kind of fall off. And we see a lot of guys in their, their later tiers in their career, once you're down the road, 20, 25 years, the guys have gained 50, 60 pounds and they've developed diabetes and a whole bunch of other health conditions due to poor eating and uh, just being living a sedentary lifestyle. So I'm going to take a word that you said, and I'm going to turn it over to Cornell. You touched on a word complacent that stuck out for me. And it's not a knock on anybody, but I think it's it's almost difficult if you're not constantly involved in critical incidents, especially for the slower agencies. It's very, very easy to get complacent. So, Cornell, what would be your two cents on that as far as the importance of being mentally and physically prepared and avoiding complacency in this line of work? You know, I think it's like driving, right? If you've been doing it for some time, you kind of it's easy to get caught up in autopilot. And I think the statistics show most car accidents occur within like a mile from your house or something like that because you you switch off. In law enforcement, I think in our academy, when you're doing like traffic stops and patrol techniques, these scenarios are like absolute worst case scenario. The passenger is going to jump out, crawl under the car, grab your ankles, take your gun, handcuff you, kidnap you. you know, it's just absolute worst case scenario. Uh, scenarios that are thrown out during training environment. Then you come out. I remember my first traffic stop, clear as day, first night out. I'm on the passenger side. My training officer's on the driver's side, and he he stops the car for like a tag light. And my mom reverts back 
to those training scenarios. So I, I've got my hand on my gun, adrenaline's dumping, and I'm ready for the person to jump out the car. It's going to be a foot chase, a gunfight. Something crazy is about to happen. In reality, we check a license, we give a verbal warning, and we send them on their day. And after you've done that a few dozen, a few hundred times, it's easy to find yourself in that autopilot state, right? And then you find yourself going to the show. And that's when we say going to the show, it's that moment of truth where it's do or die and your grit is tested, your skill sets are tested, your tactics are tested, your will to live is tested. And that that manifests differently for different people. But when you're in that moment of truth, that's what we refer to as going to the show. And if you completely let those skills, you know, firearms training, perishable skill set, physical fitness, perishable, right? If you let that stuff get get rusty in the moment of truth, it ends badly for you. You hit the nail on the head. And I'm thinking about what JR said with training. And personally speaking, it one of the last major incidents that I was involved in, it was a lot of us. It wasn't just myself. It was a lot of us. And one of the compliments we got was everybody was putting a testament to the training. We didn't really think about what we did. We just did it. I think that in itself speaks about how important it is to train and to focus on what you need to do. So I, I would say, you know, with the mental preparedness and the mental mindset, that's part of that. What do each of you do? I'll start with Cornell and then I'll go to JR. What do each of you do? to make sure you make the time or find the time to focus on what you need to focus with? How do you prioritize it? So when I say autopilot, autopilot can be good or autopilot can be bad, right? If you're training to be proficient with your firearms, if if you're training your mind, thinking about what if scenarios to be alert, to be vigilant, if you're training, drawing, reloading, handcuffing, subject control techniques, if you're training these things in the moment of truth, that autopilot kicks in and you're going through the motions, right? You, your body takes over, your mind takes over, there's a mind-muscle connection and you're just in the execution phase. So that's when autopilot is good. And that's why training and having that what-if mentality constantly. When I'm off duty, when I'm in my personal car, uh, and JR can definitely tap on that based on his personal experience, but when I'm off duty, when I'm with my kids and I got on jeans and a hoodie, I'm constantly running through what-if scenarios. And if you're constantly in a state of what-if, when that moment comes, like I said, JR can can share his personal story if, he, if he's up for it. We're going to do that on part two. But let me ask let me ask you this before I go to JR, because I just want to play devil's advocate. Is there a point? Because I know we're going to have some people, maybe some husbands, some wives, some uh, family members of law enforcement. Is there a such thing as paranoia or too much or over planning or how do you, where's the equal balance? You know, some people refer to it as hypervigilance. And I think that there's a healthy level of hypervigilance. Any of us that have done the job, like when we went out to eat the other day, it's three cops at a table. We're going to fight over who's going to have their back to the door, right? That, that's, that's it's the nature of the beast. I think when you can't function normally is when it becomes problematic. You know, my, my daughter is eight, my son is five, and I'm already teaching them at a level in which they can understand situational awareness. That's healthy. Thinking about what if scenarios are healthy, knowing where your exits are is healthy. Thinking of a, uh, an evacuation route when you're in your personal vehicle, your patrol vehicle, whatever, that's healthy. It's when you get to a point where you can't function in a normal, healthy setting. I think that's when it becomes problematic. Well said. All right, we covered a lot. Let me back up a little bit and turn it over to JR to piggyback off of any of that. Well, I think uh, 
I think that's super key, man. I think, you know, a lot of that is going to play into, you know, obviously your experience and what you've been involved in. I think some of that hypervigilance comes from actually drawn from that experience. It comes from those traumatic situations you've been involved in. It comes from the PTSD that you you accumulate over a career. And, you know, like like Cornell said, it's important to be healthy and to, to, to prepare. There's there's some things that I've done a lot of, you know, that I've prepared more so after being involved in the critical incident that I didn't before. There's things that I thought about that I didn't think before. Just like Cornell, you know, I, we kind of piggyback off one another as far as our kids. You know, my daughter's five and I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And even to this day, it's never too young to kind of prepare them. I'm having my daughter in the car. I'm like, you know, I tell her now my personal car. I'm like, you got to keep your head in the swivel. You're down looking at the iPad. You're not paying attention. You know, when, when daddy's at a stoplight or when daddy's getting ready to get out of the car, I need your head to be on the swivel. When I'm at the bank and I'm getting my card out to, to, to put it into the, the machine and get some cash out, I don't need you looking down in your, in your, in your iPad. I need you looking and scanning, uh, telling daddy if there's somebody walking up on the vehicle, what kind of the vehicles are around, uh, paying attention to those small things. Uh, like you said, that's healthy. You know, preparing your wife or what do you, you know, what do we, what happens when I'm out at the grocery store at the mall and I see somebody that I've had a violent encounter with, you know, what are those codes or what are those signs that we're going to give each other to know, hey, get the girls and you guys get out of here and I'll meet up with you when I can. What's that? That's healthy, you know, but like you said, when you start to allow that stuff to play into your daily life, and it, it, it destroys like your normal, normal day functions. I think that's when you need to start looking at, you know, is, is what I'm doing extremely healthy? Is it, is it, is it good for me? Uh, is it bad for me? Is it, you know, exacerbating that though, those PTS factors, is it making you know me stress more? Is it making me drink more? So you have to balance it and it has to, it has to be healthy at the end of the day. Yeah, well said. And I agree about it being healthy. I think it's the right thing to do. And to anybody that, and the reason I brought this up, the devil's advocate side of it is I just see some people saying, oh my God, these guys are overprepared and they're talking about their kids and everything. But I'll tell you what, it goes back to that whole training mindset. If this is what you're used to. When that day comes, you're going to react how you prepare and you don't want to be unprepared you don't want to not have any mindset whatsoever about what you should do when that happens. And then it actually happens. So how do you, uh, JR, how do you prioritize being a busy guy with everything going on? Do you find the time? Do you make the time? How do you make sure you're prepared? I think you really have to make the time. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's 24 hours in a day, you know, you really don't have a lot of time, you know, 24 hours is really not a lot of time, especially when you're working, you're working a 12 hour shift. You're getting up an hour early to prepare and get dressed. And so it becomes a 13, 14 hour day, depending on, you know, what you should be doing. Healthy, healthy sleep, they say, is anywhere between six to eight hours. Uh, I'm not sure as a cop, I've gotten that amount of sleep in my, my career, unless there's a day that I've been off, you know. So you, you're supposed to get six hours of sleep. So that puts us right there at 20 hours if you're sleeping for six hours at the least, uh, which gives you four hours to kind of do what you need to do, either prepare dinner, prepare food, spend time with the family, go to the gym and work out or to, to be involved in a hobby that you that you, you take your time to do. Uh, so you really only have about four hours to do something that you really want to do if you're not doing it during your work hours. So how I stay prepared, man, is I just make time for it. When I'm working day shift, our day shift starts early. I'm out of the house by 4.50. Instead of going to the gym early at 3, um, I work my 12-hour shift. I come home, make sure I do what I need to do for the kids, and I go and spend time at the gym. It's something that I know I have to do, and I only have about those four hours to do the things I need to do uh, to wind down, spend time with my kids. So it's really about making that time. It's easy for us to – it's easy for people – I always say it's easy for us to make an excuse. It's harder to to, to, to make make time and, and do what you need to do in order to prepare. You know, it's just – if you want to survive this career, it's a 30-year career. You know, I've been told that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. 
you got to be doing everything necessary to put yourself in a, posi- in a position to survive because the goal is what retirement. You want to enjoy those, you know, your supplement, you want to enjoy your benefits. So you got to do everything necessary to make sure that you reach those 30 years. Anything that's in your control, you take control of and you, and you just you do it. Uh, you got to make time. There's no there's no time for excuses. I hear that. Now, Cornell, not to put you on the spot, but just because I happen to know. So for somebody that is in a relationship with another law enforcement officer talking about what we're talking about now, how do you find the time to balance supporting each other on this topic? I mean, I could answer that question. I could go in so many different directions with that. There's obviously the logistical challenges right now. I'm home with the kids and she's out working night shift. Uh, So that makes me about 50 percent of the month a single dad. Right. And then with my obligations, it kind of reverses. I'm gone half the time. She's gone half the time. And that gives us very limited time together. And from that aspect, the objective is to make that quality time. You know, when I'm with my wife and my, my buddies are calling me. You, you might get sent to voicemail, right? Because the time is limited. So I've got to happen a few times to me. Absolutely. I'm sure you can attest to it. So in that regard, just being intentional, deliberate, making sure date nights and things that are squared, that's not unique to being uh, married to a, another police officer, but any in any relationship, it's just an added challenge where you got somebody that's working nights, weekends, and holidays. As far as uh, one thing that I find I had to kind of mature is, for example, one night a few years ago, I was actually involved in an officer-involved shooting, and I didn't know what was about to happen. I didn't know if I was going to be sequestered, if people were taking my phones. I didn't know what was going to go on. So I sent a text, a group text to my mother, my father, and my wife, and said I was just involved in a shooting. The suspect, I said, I'm okay. The Don't suspect- go too much into this, because this is going to be into part two. Oh, that's part two? All right, so let me, let me, let me, I'll trim the fat, I'll trim the fat and land the plane. So I text my wife and her response was, well, who shot who, right? And it, it, it wasn't the typical emotional, oh my God, baby, are you okay response. And so that's, that's one of the added layer or, or challenges of being married to another police officer. But what I've learned is, and again, with any relationship, when an issue, a challenge, a problem, is brought to you, your spouse isn't looking for you to fix it. They're looking for you to support them. So when she's had a tough day at work, when she'd seen things, her last night shift, she came home kind of shaken because she went to a death investigation and the deceased was one of her good friend's twin sisters and she responded to the call, right? So in that moment, it's, it's not time for me to be a cop, it's time for me to be a husband. So I think the, the short answer to your question would be, the way we support each other is being mindful that my role when we're here is to be that as a, of a spouse, not a coworker. I tell you, I think that's easier said than done, but. Oh, it took years and, and we're still working through it. That that's I'm, I'm reminding myself as I answer the question, because we, uh, we have tried to critique one another's calls and actions and decisions. And as you can imagine, that can be problematic. So I'm learning as I, I answer that. All right. Let me hit you with a random question here. I'm going to, to uh, JR first, and then Cornell, you take it. Uh, advice now, knowing what you do for brand new officers just getting out of the academy, maybe just off field training and starting out for themselves. I think the biggest thing is you have to ask questions. Uh, I, I just actually started with a, a trainee today. It was his first day on the job. Now, just make sure, man, you got to be asking questions. Uh, you got to always be willing to learn. I think you have to invest 
uh, not only, you know, just in the profession, but you have to invest in yourself. You know, what are you doing to prepare? Stay prepared. Uh, my mantra is hard to kill. Uh, that's something that me and ZC came up with after uh, both of our incidents. It's remaining hard to kill. What are you doing? And, and that's, that's you know, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, preparing yourself every day for the job. I think you ask those questions, you continue to learn, you continue to, to be a steward of this profession, um, and you make yourself valuable. You make yourself valuable to your department. You make yourself valuable to your family and your friends. You make yourself valuable, most importantly, to yourself. So just invest the time, you know, whatever it takes. If it, if it takes the time, if it takes the money, um, if it takes uh, just the, the hard, true grit, then invest in yourselves and, and do that until it's time for you to, to hang those bootstraps up uh, and walk out of the door. It has to be 30 years of you, you know, giving 100 percent. And that's very hard to ask of a young officer, but you know, stay inspired. There's going to be times that, that you, you, you come through your career where you hit hard spots and you get complacent and you get burnt out and just remember, remember why you started, you know, that's the key. Whenever you find out that you want to quit and you want to give up and it becomes tough, remember why you started. That kind of always motivates me. I like it. Well said. Cornell, tough to follow that, but go ahead. Yeah, super. I think for me, the two chief lessons that I've had to learn the hard way, right? I came into the profession as Cornell and when I leave, whether that be injury, early retirement, retirement, when I leave, I'm going to still be Cornell. And it's chiefly important to remain true to making sure you put first things first. For the first leg of my career, I married all things law enforcement. I married all things related to my agency. I went in early. I stayed late. I went in on days off. I volunteered for overtime, special assignments. I mean, I, I was married to the game. Uh, at that phase, my daughter, you know, my wife and I were dating, got married, had a daughter. And I can tell you, I neglected my family doing what I thought was noble at the time, right? Um, we're going to have a whole part three to this and you're going to be perfect for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the big lesson for me is just keeping first things first. Uh, my dad, one of the toughest things that, you know, I've, I've got to live with. My dad called me one night and said that his mother was in the hospital uh, and the doctors were saying we needed to get there. And I had just gotten a promotion, got to a new unit and I was basically in charge of the unit. And I told my dad, like, man, I got to be at work tomorrow. Like they need me. Right. And that was it was an earnest belief is that I was needed to be there. And my dad went on and his mother passed and I wasn't there. And that that's a tough thing, man. So through tough lessons and harsh realities, I realized that when the chips are down, uh, the people with the last name Richards are going to be the ones that are going to still be there regardless. So for the past few years, I've kind of got a renewed second chance and make it right with those, you know, those the friendships I had before law enforcement and just making sure that family is first. You know, love the job, love your community, love what you do, help everybody you can help. But family's got to be first to remain grounded, for sure. Well said. And I can't tell you, myself included, how many people in this profession, I think you learn the hard way or I think it takes some years before, I don't know, it's like a cinder block falls out of the sky and hits me on the head and I woke up. You know, I, I think having children changes you. Mm -hmm. being there, being involved as a father, especially for your children. But I could echo exactly what you said my first several years in law enforcement, coming in early, staying late, volunteering, all that stuff. But that's going to all go into part three. All right. So same question, but a little bit different now, because I like where both of you guys are at mentally. And I think the three of us are kind of aligned with this. 
What do you say advice for seasoned veteran officers? And I know you've got so many different kinds. We can all attest to it. You've got your seasoned vets that are happy, helpful, had a great career. You've got your retired on duty, salty, you know, disgruntled veterans. You've got some that just skate by. But if you had to just sum it up, focusing on success and being able to survive, what would you say to a seasoned veteran? And this one, we'll start with Cornell and then we'll uh, follow up with JR. I would say it's two prongs there, right? In this in this line of work, you're going to see things and you're going to do things that the average human being should never see or have to do, right? And in order to stay emotionally, mentally, spiritually grounded, my advice would it be find a confidant, find somebody, you know, that you can unpack these things with. That we're starting to see a turn, but we're not quite where we need to be. You know, when you and I came on, it was be strong, lace up the bootstraps, stay focused, keep pressing. And then, and the reality is we're human, right? I personally been shot at, had to shoot, hail dead babies, unsuccessfully performed CPR. I've seen all the worst that humanity has to offer. And I don't care how strong, how tough you are. If it does not impact you some kind of way, you got issues, right? So for me to survive long-term, you got to be able to have somebody you can unpack that with. The other part is your career should be kind of like life. When you're 18, 19, 20, you're, you're all gas, no brakes, right? You're doing whatever young adults do, and that's normal. You should do that. At a certain part of your life, you got to mature and switch gears and slow down, become a mentor, become an advisor, become a leader. And when I say leader, it doesn't necessarily mean having stripes or bars on your collar. It means taking that advisory role. Hey, here are the lessons that I've learned from the things I've done well. Here are the lessons I've learned from the things I screwed up and paying that forward. You can't have an entire police department full of people that are all gas, no brakes. Eventually you burn out. At some point, you've got to mature. Let the young guys do young guy things. Let the seasoned vets do seasoned vet things. And I think it's a healthy balance where you can still be present, engaged, uh, and even proactive without, you know, just being gung-ho, if you would. I love it. I love it. And I'm going to follow up with you on one part of that. But let me turn it to JR now. Advice for seasoned veterans. I think for seasoned veterans, I think the the biggest thing is, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is legacy. Uh, when you start talking about seasoned veteran, you know, what type of legacy do you want to leave? You know, what type of mark do you want to make on your department? There's so many officers that are close to retirement that are almost there and they're, they have a real dis- disgust and disdain. They're burnt out. But you got to understand that that affects the culture, um, you know, especially those guys, because most of those guys are veterans. You know, they've been there, done that. They're probably training officers. They may be supervisors and their attitudes toward the job because they're ready to end it. They're ready to be done with it. Um can sometimes leave a bad taste in those young officers' mouth. So you got to think about how is your attitude affecting the culture? What type of legacy are you leaving? Uh, that's that's super important. And I just to pack, piggyback off of what Cornell said, you know, I think there, there's it's very important. Like you said, that that position to where you're you're an advisor, where you're a mentor, where you're a role model, uh, that's key. And you never know when that's going to happen uh, in your career. It could be maybe it could be early. You know, I'm ten years in the game, and I, that's one of the things that I've struggled struggled with. You know. For the last, you know, nine years of my career, eight or eight and a half, nine years, I've been ripping and running. You know, I've been that I've been an officer that's you know, ripping and running, chasing everybody, doing all the, the bad guy stuff, doing all the cool stuff. And I get to my first role as a corporal being a first line supervisor and that mindset of being a, you know, a role model 
it, it, it starts back up again. And I have to realize, and that's one of the biggest things that the chief told me, he said, hey, you're, you're getting into that, that supervisor role. I need you to start teaching and guiding and advising and being a role model and a peer support for these younger guys because you're going to build them up. What legacy do you really want to leave? You know, th- this is this career is it's long and we said that. The other big the other big thing about that uh, to end it off is that, you know, once you start getting to you, you getting into, you know, year 20, you know, 25, you're close to retirement. You have to start thinking about life after the profession. We know that most of those guys, a lot of times if you look at officer down, a lot of these officers that are getting killed in line of duties, they have, you know, they're 15, 20 year veterans, you know, so they've got halfway through their career, almost to the end. And then some tragic happens because they've either let their guards down and let themselves go. So, you know, the young, you, it's almost expected for those young guys, the young officers who to, to, to kind of, I hate to say this, but kind of fall off early, just being clueless and not having the experience, but you expect those older officers, those veteran officers to do the right thing, to understand the job, to do necessary things to survive. Um, and, and surviving, you know, after the job is key, you know, law enforcement, the, the life expectancy after retirement is only five years. Guys work their, their butts off for 30 years. And in two years, they die on the couch due to a heart attack because they didn't prepare themselves mentally and physically, emotionally for life after the job. You know, you're running all, you're running all day and night. Uh, and eventually you come to a point where you become sedentary, you know, what are you going to do? So, you know, what legacy do you want to leave at the end of the day? Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, you walk out of that door, it's like, it's, re- it's retiring. It's like hanging that jersey up. You want people to look at your, look at that name and be like, I remember that guy. He was special. He was a leader. Uh, we need more people like him. So. Man, I, I love this. We can, I could talk to you guys for hours. And you, <laughs> you took it full circle, JR, because you, you hit it right back to where we started with how important it is to be mentally prepared, physically prepared. And it goes to show you, you know, your goal is retirement. Your goal is to finish that career. Your goal is to live as many years as you possibly can afterwards and how critical that is. Let me see here. It was a couple things, but all right, going back to Cornell, I want to talk about real quick and then we'll wrap this up. We'll part two is going to blow everybody away. I know that for sure. Going back to Cornell, you were talking about confidant and what you do with what you see and everything. I'm just going to throw, I'm not a big stat guy, but I'm just going to throw two at you real quick. So two you need a calculator? no, I'm all right. Thank you. I appreciate the support though. All gas, no breaks. 2020, 177 confirmed suicides that we know of that were confirmed. And I say that because there's probably more that we don't know of. And there's probably more that were not appropriately classified as suicide. That's just for police officers in 2020. 2021, we're not done with February yet, and we're already at 23. So I wanted to harp on something you said earlier, because luckily for me, it was harped on by some really good FTOs very early on in the game, that what you see is not necessarily healthy, and you have to do something with it. What I found was talking to friends outside of law enforcement, I got frustrated because they didn't understand, and then I would have to go and explain the basics. So I end up developing close friendships with maybe one or two guys that I can really confide in. And then we bounce off information to each other. So I wanted to harp on the whole peer support thing, coping, friends, having that confidence. I think that was a very, very good point that you mentioned. And I just wanted to take a second to harp on that. JR, you agree with that? I 100% agree with that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a great question. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to open up a lot for us over this three-part series. But that that that's super key, Rich. I, I, I 100% agree with that. All right. And then before we wrap it up, Cornell, 
with everything going on these days in the world, and we're not talking politics, but with everything going on in the world these days, if you could explain anything to the general public, somebody that's not in law enforcement, they turn on the news, this critical incident, this is a controversy, this is horrible, oh my God, look what the police did. Have at it. I think the easiest explanation is police officers are human. Police officers, some do make mistakes. When they make mistakes, they should be held accountable. Unfortunately, what we're seeing nine times out of 10 is a 10 second, 30 second clip that is a very small fraction of a greater moment that, or from a certain angle. If you go to YouTube, there are videos out there where it looks horrible from one angle, then another angle appears and you're like, oops, I didn't know that, right? So when we see these scenarios, we have to, one, consider that what we're saying is not all there is to know, allow for a full and thorough investigation. And when these officers misstep, I think any good police officer would agree that they should be held accountable. I'm not opposed to uh, police reform. I'm not opposed to holding officers accountable when they misstep. Uh, I think the thing that is troubling for me, and I, you know, I think most good officers would agree, is the rush to judgment. If a citizen or criminal, let's call them what they are, if a criminal goes and commits an egregious, horrific, you know, violent crime, they will be referred to as the alleged or the crime will be referenced as allegedly until they're found guilty in court. A police officer appears in a 30 second clip and we're laying down the law as if we know everything there is. So that's that's my take on that when it comes to the current climate we're in. JR, same question. Um, I think the biggest uh, part of that question or the biggest thing that TC said, I'm going to piggyback on that. Uh, it's, it's key, but uh, we're human. You know, humans are prone to mistakes. Uh, I think we deserve to be held to a higher standard because of the power that we hold, you know, taking people's rights and liberties and freedoms away. I think we should be held to a higher standard. Uh, but understand that, you know, we're human. We're going to make mistakes and just trust the process. You know, I think the biggest thing that we, we've seen that we haven't got from the general public is we're, we're always condemned early, um, but we, we're never asked, you know, what we need to make the job better. You know what I mean? Because if the job is going wrong and things are, you know, mistakes are being made and you start to see the same mistakes, you know, then it's something that we need to be doing better. But, you know, how do we get there? We have to work together to kind of bridge that gap. You know, we always we stay at odds. Then we'll never reach that common ground. The, the, the gap will never be bridged. And we have to learn to work together. You know what I mean? Because law enforcement can't exist without the community. Community can't exist without law enforcement. It kind of goes hand in hand. Um, we just have to learn to respect one another, uh, to give each other, you know, equal equal rights, equal space uh, to, to to see things differently. And it's OK to agree to disagree. Law enforcement officers are obviously going to have a, a different, you know, uh, mindset or the way they process things. This is the way we're grounded. Uh, we don't we, we, we deal with facts. It's easy for a lot of times for, you know, a lot of people get upset and say, well, all these bad officers are doing all this, you know, doing all these things. And none of the good officers are speaking up. I mean, that's not the case. I mean, there's a ton of officers that speak out against wrongdoing. But a lot of times we, are, we, we want to process, we want to have the facts, we want to make sure that what we're saying isn't jumping to the conclusion, uh, because we know without the facts, it doesn't exist. Uh, it's just like the court of law, you have to go upon the evidence and the facts, and it's okay to process it that way, because a lot of people are going to see it totally different. Um, but we have to be willing to meet in the middle. Law enforcement has to be able to get down to the community's level and learn how they do things. And then at the same time, the community has to be willing to learn how law enforcement is doing their job and what they need to be, to be better. So uh, it kind of works hand in hand. Man, so, so incredibly well said. I could not agree more. I, I could go so many different ways with that, but uh, yeah, I think it's an educational 
thing first and foremost. And I think a key point on what you're saying about rushing to judgment, JR, if you recall, and I'm not going to name specific cases, but there's been a lot of controversial cases that look bad at first to Cornell's point when you see a 10 second video clip and then months, maybe even years go by and it's taken its course through the courts. And ultimately the officer has been found not guilty of X, Y, and Z. So I think there's some good points there. One of my takeaways from talking to both of you tonight is a lot of the onus is on us. You know, I think a lot of times, and I could say I'm guilty of this myself. I think a lot of times we look and we point the finger at the police departments or the agencies or the sheriff's offices. What can they do for us? Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? But you know what? You, You can't make excuses. And if you're not getting the physical training that you want, go out and seek it. If you're not yep. getting the uh, the peer support training that you think your agency needs, go look at a different agency, go look at different colleges, go look elsewhere, try to find it, bring it to the agency. So from talking to both of you, you guys are both excellent representations for the profession. And it's just been really nice talking to you guys tonight. I can't wait to talk about part two. I can't wait to have uh, part three. Before I go into our traditional closing, I'm going to give you guys just a minute. Any last words on part one? Cornell, go ahead, start it off. JR, finish it off. Uh, Just kind of piggybacking off of one of your last points there, Rich. Um, As far as career survival, happiness, uh, emotional well-being, fitness, whatever it is, right? In life, it's my personal philosophy that you get out of it what you put into it, right? There's not a chief of police, a sheriff, a wife, a child, an employer, supervisor that controls my happiness, right? Those are things that I dictate based on my choices. If I'm not happy with a situation, I'm empowered to go out and create a better situation for myself. Uh, If I'm not happy with my work situation, I can can change that situation. One of the phrases that I, I steal from my dad is I choose to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. And I think if more officers in this profession adopted that ownership, their overall happiness and job satisfaction would improve. And to add to that, uh, because I've talked to Cornell Senior, I, 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 he tells me all the time, you know, no one can, you know, no one can, you know, take away your happiness. Uh, you have to freely give that away. Uh, it's something you have to freely give away. You know, I talk to all these young guys who are burnt down and disgruntled. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you're responsible for You're the captain of your own morale uh, at the end of the day. I mean, no, no matter what the culture is where you work, uh, it's about what type of energy you bring to the table. Uh, you got to stay empowered. You got to stay true. Um, not only to, to, to everyone else, but to yourself, more importantly. So it goes back to the old saying, Rich, you know, every time we point the finger at somebody, you know, we have those fingers pointing back at us. Uh, that, that's super key. You know, we, I learned that at a young age. Every time you point that finger, you got three fingers pointing back at you. So you have to realize that sometimes it's not on everybody else. It's not the culture. It's not your supervisor. It's not the public. Sometimes it's your attitude and how that affects a job. And you really have to look yourself in the mirror every day. And you got to challenge that person in the mirror every single day? Are you doing everything necessary to make yourself happy, to put yourself in a position to where you will be successful? I think that's super key. I love it. Well said. Well, gentlemen, it has been an absolute honor. I hope both of you stay safe. And we'll uh, we'll head for part two in probably about two weeks or so. We'll play it by ear, but I'm looking forward to that one. For our traditional closing with Team South Florida, we like to honor a fallen police officer that was killed the same day that we have our podcast. So we're gonna go back to February 22nd, 1908. And we're gonna go to North Carolina where 
Fayetteville Police Chief James Benton was tragically killed in the line of duty. Chief Benton and his family were about to sit down for dinner at their home when a woman ran to the chief's house. The woman told Chief Benton that a male suspect was drinking and trying to kill her. Chief Benton immediately stopped what he was doing, walked away from his family, walked away from his dinner, grabbed his pistol, grabbed his cap, and exited his residence to investigate. The suspect happened to be hiding in a stable directly behind Chief Benton's home and immediately began running toward Chief Benton. Unfortunately, the suspect was able to shoot Chief Benton in the face before Chief Benton was able to retrieve his pistol from his pocket and defend himself. The suspect was subsequently wounded by Chief Benton's son, later arrested, convicted of murder, and hung. May Chief Benton rest easy, in peace, and never be forgotten.